Good morning, church. Good morning to those of you uh, online today. Hey, before we uh, jump, jump into the message this morning, I just want to say a, a few words about what happened Wednesday at the Capitol and, and the loss of five people's lives. Uh, the church affirms uh, the use of peaceful protests, but we reject any kind of violence. Uh, right now, America is deeply divided, and this division uh, finds its way into the church as well. Even here at Anderson Hills, uh, we do not all agree on the future of our country. But I hope that all of us do agree on the need to work together for peace and for justice, uh, for um, uh, the right to vote and freedom of speech, in short, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, the Apostle Paul reminds us, however, that we have one other duty uh, as Christians, and it's this. Um, he says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge then, first of all, that prayers be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, listen now, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. And then he ends by saying, this is good and it pleases God. I'd like for us to bow our heads and just take a moment for prayer, shall we? God, you have told us that we need to be praying for our leaders, that we need to pray for our country, and so we do in Jesus' name. God, we pray for direction. We pray for uh, our leaders, that you would help them to make right decisions, godly decisions. Lord, that we might live in a land of peace and freedom, that we might value each and every person despite, God, the differences that we have. And help us, the church, to be a light in dark times, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, let's not just do that once on Sunday morning. Let's be doing that on a daily basis uh, through this time of transition. Well, back when I was a boy, our Methodist church back home was having their annual confirmation uh, winter retreat at Lancaster Campground, and uh, I didn't want to go, believe it or not. I wasn't always a church boy. And uh, my parents insisted, so I went, but I got to tell you, I went with an attitude. Um, on Friday afternoon after school, we drove the 40 or so miles up Route 33, and we had a, had a really good snowfall, and the weather was really cold that weekend. And Saturday morning came, and, and the wake-up call sounded, but I thought, you know, I'm just going to stay in my warm sleeping bag for just a little bit longer. And some of the older boys tried several times to, to get me out of bed, but I just wasn't uh, going to budge until finally I found myself uh, being dragged out of bed, still in my sleeping bag, down the hallway, out the door, and they threw me into a pile of snow at the end of the sidewalk. True. Nothing will get you up by moving faster than snow in your PJs, let me say. The thing, the thing is that not only did it get me out of bed, but it also began to change my attitude as well. And we need that. Uh, we need a wake-up call. Sometimes we get a little too comfortable in our spiritual life. Sometimes we get just a little bit too complacent. And the Apostle Paul is having the same issue. He had to write to the church of Ephesians. He said, wake up, sleepers. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And then he says, but be very careful how you live, 
Not as unwise, but as wise. See, sometimes we need to be awakened from our spiritual slumber. So today we're getting this, uh, this sermon series through the season of Epiphany entitled Wake Up. And it's based upon, as you saw in the video, it's based upon a research study conducted by the Barna Institute in 2011 in which 15,000 people were uh, surveyed for some six years to understand how Christians grow in their spiritual lives. And one of the things they began to see in, in, the, in, in their information was that there are, seem to be 10 steps on the journey towards spiritual maturity. See if you can identify maybe where you are right now. The first is this, an, uh, uh, an unawareness of sin. Number two, an indifference to sin. Number three, worried about sin. Number four, finding forgiveness for sin. Number five, becoming active in church and in faith activities. Number six, a holy discontent with your spiritual life. Number seven, being broken by God. Number eight, choosing to surrender and submit fully to God. Number nine, having a profound love for God. And number ten, having a profound love for people. Now, what the research showed is that most Americans never get past the third stop. That is worrying about sin. We worry about sin, but we don't do anything about that. We don't change. But more concerning, they found that most people in the church stop progressing in their spiritual journey after they ask Jesus to be their Savior and commit to faith activities. In essence, they go the first half of the gospel and then stop. They they are justified by what Christ has done on the cross, but they've never moved into the second half, what we call sanctification. They make a decision to believe in in Jesus, and they get themselves busy in church activities. And we're really good at at doing that, but they do not become real disciples of Jesus. They do not understand that, that salvation is not the same thing as transformation, that there's another step after that. We confuse getting involved in lots of church activities with being a growing disciple who follows Jesus. And usually it's pastors, like myself, who are to blame. We're really good at getting you busy, (laughs) but not so good at helping you to grow. But i got to tell you, God has so much more in store for us. Uh, We miss out on the the fullness of the Spirit-filled life. We're really good at setting goals. We're really good at setting financial goals or career goals uh, or health goals. But how many of us have set spiritual goals? For this year. What we all need is to be awakened to his presence in our lives, his purpose for our times. See, without a personal awakening, we'll not be able to be the agents of awakening for others, making the difference that this world so badly needs right now. So what is the second half of the gospel? Well, the first half of the gospel is characterized by our justification. That is, we become aware that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. 
We profess faith in Christ and his work on the cross. We experience the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. We receive baptism. We, we join a church, and, and then we get involved in activities. And, and that's where a lot of us just stop. In fact, 89% of all Christians stop at this point, never go any further. See, we work so hard at getting people into the doors of the church, but we fail to, to t- take them deeper in. The second half of the gospel is characterized by our sanctification. Now, hopefully that's not a new word for you. We spent a good deal last year trying to explain this, this sanctification process. But sanctification begins when we begin to have this holy discontent for life as it is. It's a desire to go deeper, to experience transformation, to, to find freedom from the lies that we have believed, to, to begin to unravel our false uh, selves and to put on the new. It's to love God and, and to love our neighbor uh, as ourselves. So how do we do that? How do we move to the second half of the gospel? That's what we're going to be covering in the next six weeks or so. And I want us to begin today by listening to Jesus' words found in Mark's gospel, chapter 8. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So Jesus is walking with his disciples. He's near uh, the village of Caesarea Philippi. And along the way, he asks them a question. He says, uh, who do others say that I am? And the disciples give him a variety of answers. Well, some say that you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Others think that you're Elijah the prophet. Some think you're one of the other prophets. But Jesus wants to know what they think. And so he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And impetuous Peter, he he speaks up right away. He says, I know you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus must have thought, alas, you know, alas, they're beginning to understand what, what this is all about. And so he starts to prepare them for what is soon going to happen because they're going to they're begin moving down towards Jerusalem. And Jesus knows what, what, what awaits him there. And so he tells them he's going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected by the religious authorities. That he's going to be shamed and, and, and crucified and die. Now, imagine Peter's astonishment. He had just stated his belief that, that Jesus uh, was the Christ, and he believed like many uh, of his day, the Messiah would come in power and with glory to, to drive out the, the Roman invaders and to reestablish the throne of David. And so he takes Jesus aside, and he begins to correct him. Jesus, wait. <laughs> no, you've you, you got a pretty negative attitude here, Jesus. It's not going to be that bad. No one's going to kill you. You're not going to Jerusalem uh, to die. You're going there to reign. Well, Jesus thought they were finally catching on, but apparently not. 
And so he gathers them around him, and he tries once more to teach them what his mission is and how they can join him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So in this short couple of verses, Jesus gives us a road map to the second half of the Gospel, and it's really quite simple. Deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow me. You see, to go deeper, we have to lose our lives. To go deeper, we have to go down. And what exactly does this mean? Well, it begins with deny yourself. Now, denial, self-denial, was the lifestyle of Jesus. I mean, it's obvious, beginning with the temptation uh, in the wilderness that began his ministry to the very climax of the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, uh, let thy will be done, that Jesus lived this life of total self-denial. Now, we often make the mistake that self-denial is purposely not doing something that we like to do, don't we? How many of you have ever thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show Jesus, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to exemplify self-denial, I'm going to give up chocolate for a whole day. No, Lord, I'm going to go two days. I'm really serious about this. Or whatever your little thing is, I'm going to give up Coke. I'm going I'm to give up this or that, whatever it is. And others have tried that as well. Simeon the Stylite was a monk who lived about 1,500 years ago. He, he tried to practice self-denial by burying himself up to his neck in sand in a hot desert for 30 days. And that didn't work. <laughs> and so he, he lived for, the re- for 30 years. He climbed on top of a 60-foot pillar and lived up there for 30 years in an attempt to self-deny himself. Now, Granted, you, you wouldn't get in much trouble 60 foot up in the air, but it didn't really bring about the results he was looking for. Another great saint, Genoa, Catherine of Genoa, slept on a bed of thorns and put pebbles in her shoes to try to deny herself. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Uh, sometimes we think that it's giving up a bad habit like smoking or drinking or overeating. Folks, that's not self-denial. That, that's just good common sense. You see, self-denial is not about making, it's not just about making sacrifices. It's really about a a radical reorientation of of life. It means that we we say no to self and yes to God. That is that we we choose to abandon self-trust and and self-assertion and and self-centeredness. We abandon ourself as the ruling and determining element in us and we say yes to God to love our neighbors, to bear each other's burdens, and to become servants of each other instead of taskmasters. And so our care is just one thing, and that is to, is, as to do his will. His care is to give us all things. It's a turning. It's a turning from self-sufficiency to God's sufficiency. To say yes to God's will rather than our own. And if we do that, we may find that it results in our losing our life, but then discovering that we can only truly live when we lose it. That's one of the paradoxes of the gospel. And it makes absolutely no sense. But hold on. Secondly, Jesus invites us to take up the cross. Now, what does this mean? 
Now, I'm sure when the disciples heard these words, it left them trembling and breathless. Because to their minds, the cross was what? It was an instrument of torture and death, wasn't it? The Romans used the cross to strike fear into the hearts of everybody who saw it, to scare them into quiet submission to their authority. And so we have spiritualized the cross to, to mean a burden, to take up our cross to live with some difficult situation. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Peter Cartwright was a, a rugged um, frontier circuit rider who preached in Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio uh, back in the early 1800s. And he tells the story of, of a man and a wife who were converted at one of the Methodist camp meetings. And later on, the preacher was riding his horse down the road, and he spied up ahead the man carrying his wife upon his back. And thinking the woman had been injured, he, 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 he sought to help the man since he was kind of a small and wiry guy, and his wife was kind of big, you know. So he rode up, and he asked him what the matter was. And the man replied, well, you told us in your sermon that we have to take up the cross and follow the Savior or we cannot be saved or go to heaven. And I desire to go to heaven as much as anybody. And this wife, she is so bad. She scolds and scolds and nags me all the time. And this woman is the greatest cross I have in the whole world. And so I must take her up and bear her to save my soul. Well, Cartwright was somewhat taken aback. <laughs> by the man's comments, but he dismounted and explained to the confused couple just what it means to take up your cross. Now, I can tell you it does not mean uh, to deal with your nagging wife or husband. That's not what it's about. So where does this idea come from? It comes from the belief that God dishes out our suffering. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're going through life, you're minding your own business. And God begins to notice that your life is going just a little bit too smoothly. And so he decides to throw some suffering into your life. Anybody believe that? Well, if you do, I have some good news. <laughs> it's not true. You see, a burden is something that you have to carry. There's no way out of it. But the cross is voluntary. You can choose to pick it up or you can choose to lay it down. So what does it mean to pick up your cross? It means to, to die to the old way. It means to face the very thing that you fear and then to risk new life for it. Some years ago, I had surgery on my eye, on my eye uh, to correct a, a vision issue I was having. And it was my first surgery, and frankly, I was scared. I mean, the idea that I would lay uh, awake while some doctor cut on my eyeball kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies. <laughs> and so the day before the surgery, I kept, all day long, I kept saying to Melinda, tell me, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? <laughs> but what kept me from backing out was the promise that my eyesight would be restored to normal. I was willing to put up with the fear and the pain, knowing that the outcome would be worth it all. And it was. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and embrace my plan for your life. Take up your cross is 
what Abraham and Sarah did. Think about it. 99 years old, childless, comfortable living in a city where you've been for years, promised by God that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars and now being sent off by God to a new home. What? You see, before they could go, Sarah and Abraham had to let go of their fear. Fear of an unknown future. Fear of what awaited them. Fear of being called fools of deep, deep disappointment. They had to let go of it all. They had to let go of their fear before they could take that first step. Take up your cross, Jesus says to us, inviting you and me to discover in ways large and small that, that hope and new life begins to emerge when we surrender to him. Take up your cross, Jesus says, inviting you and I to name what fears in our lives hold us back, inviting us to take that first step in faith, inviting us to take up our fear and to follow Jesus beyond a place where Fear holds sway to a, a new kind of life that's fully lived in Christ. A, a life raised from its deadness to walk boldly with Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a German theologian uh, put to death by Hitler, said it this way. The cross is laid on every Christian. And the first Christ suffering, which every man must experience is a call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is a result of his encounter with Christ. And as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And so when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The invitation to take up your cross, what Jesus is saying, is the invitation to die to your old self. And then Jesus calls us to follow him. Now, a lot of us have heard that call, and we've made the decision to follow Jesus. But hear me, Jesus is not just calling you and I to make a, a once, single, momentary decision to follow, but a, a lifelong commitment made many times as we come to the different crossroads in our life where we have to decide whether we're going to follow Jesus or whether we're going to follow the world. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of this verse, reveals that this is a constant thing. It's a, the constant nature of this call. He says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. I mean, think about it. When, when Jesus first called um, Peter and Andrew, when they were uh, fishing at the Sea of Galilee, he said, follow me. And they dropped their nets, and, and they followed him. And for three years, they, they followed him through the ups and downs, through the joys and, and the sorrows of ministry. And yet, do you know the very last words that Jesus spoke to Peter before he ascended back into heaven? Do you know what the words were? Simply, follow me, Peter. 
See, our decision to follow Jesus is continuous. He continues every day to extend the invitation, and we must continue to say yes to that invitation. I want you to notice one more thing. He says, if anyone wishes to come after me. You see, Jesus does not demand us to follow. Remember the rich young ruler? He wanted so much to be saved. He was an honest, upright, very moral young man. Um, probably went to synagogue every Saturday. But he was not willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. He clung to his wealth. He clung to his position. Because the thought of giving it up was too much, too painful, too scary. And so he said no and declined the Lord's invitation. And so Jesus never demands that we follow him. But if we do, we have to lay aside all those things that are clamoring to be first in our lives and to follow him. So I know this has been kind of hard, but listen up. I want you to hear the book of Hebrews. And he writes this. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Listen, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Did you hear the promise? Joy deep, sustaining drafts of joy to those who are willing to take up their cross and follow. My friends, there's not, there's, there, there, there is nothing that can bring more joy and more freedom than following Jesus. And, and those who seek security in this world and in their own life, they end up losing the one thing that makes life ultimately significant. But in losing our lives to Christ, we will find life. We'll find it more real, more complete, more lifelike than any of your wildest dreams or imagination. To lose your life for Christ, it's, it's kind of like eating hot dogs all of your life and being happy with it. And then one day, somebody invites you to Jeff Ruby's Steakhouse and you have your very first filet, and it melts in your mouth, and you realize at that moment what you've been missing, and you also understand that you'll never be satisfied with hot dogs again. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus challenges us. You ready to wake up? You want to move to that next stop in your spiritual life? What, what's holding you back? Do you know? Are there times that you thought to yourself, you know, I'd really like to go deeper, but I wonder if it's just going to cost me more than what I can handle. Let me tell you, I've had the same thoughts many times. The truth is that it does cost a lot. In fact, it costs you everything. If you're ready to begin the second half of the gospel, I invite you to pray this prayer of surrender with me. Let's bow our heads. Oh God, the Father, we acknowledge that you are worthy of all honor, glory, and praise. And so today we willingly surrender every area of our lives. 
God, thank you for the forgiveness and righteousness that's been given to us as your children. Thank you for your protection. Thank you for your daily provision. Oh, God, we thank you that, that your love for us never ceases. And so we rejoice in your victory over all the powers and principalities in the heavenlies. And in faith, we stand in your victory, and we commit ourselves to live obediently for you, our King. But God, today we desire to go deeper with you. Reveal to us those things that are standing in the way. God, we need the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and repentance of heart and strengthening of faith and increase of perseverance in resisting every kind of temptation that comes our way. And so help us to die. Help us to die to self and to walk as a new creation. Let the fruit of the Spirit begin to flow out of our lives so that you will be glorified and honored. Help us to see the lies that we have come to believe in our thoughts and our emotions. And help us instead to stand upon your word and to resist all the accusations, all the distortions, all the condemnations of the enemy that may be hurled against us. For it is our desire, O oh God, to be transformed through the renewing of our mind so that we may be obedient always to your will. And so God, today, we humbly and completely surrender our lives to you. Father, Son, 